1: You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. Happy Pride from
2: Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything.
0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. With things being as they are currently, I just wanted to work on something that felt at least overall kind of positive... And I also wanted to get a little outside of the 19th and 20th centuries because I had done some things in that time span right before I went on vacation. And then I came back from vacation to a pandemic and did some more. And it started to feel like a lot. So I said, let's, I'm going to try to find something totally different. And that finally led me to Ashoka, who ruled the Marian Empire on the Indian subcontinent in the third century BCE. So a very different time and place. Ashoka was a real person and also a legendary figure within Buddhism. And for centuries, Buddhist legends and stories were the primary source of information about his life and rule, both within and outside of South Asia. So today we are going to talk about what we know about this man and the empire and how that story grew in importance within Buddhism. And as just a note, a lot of the chronology that we're talking about today is a little bit fuzzy, as is often the case when we're talking about something so long ago. A lot of the dates that are documented aren't specific calendar dates. They're things like in the eighth year of Ashoka's reign. Um, Some years were also marked from the birth of the Buddha, and there are different opinions on that date as well. Like, there's some religiously significant dates and then other, like, uh, archaeological efforts to go back and, like, pinpoint a specific calendar date. They don't always agree. We are not going to tick off every proposed date for all the things that are going to happen because that would be a little confusing and kind of annoying to just have a list of dates every time one comes up. So just know if you're reading up on Ashoka, you might find some variance in the years.
0: Ashoka's grandfather, Chandragupta Marya, lived in the fourth century BCE. Before that point, the Indian subcontinent was home to at least 16 kingdoms, and there was a much larger number of tribes, sects, and subgroups within those kingdoms. A caste system was developing, involving a hierarchy of social classes that weren't allowed to intermarry, although that was still in its early stages. And the most widely practiced religions were Vedism, which was a precursor to Hinduism, and Jainism. This was after the Buddha had lived, but Buddhism wasn't as widely practiced yet.
1: Chandragupta lived in the Magadha kingdom in what's now northern India, and when he was born, it was being ruled by the Nanda dynasty. Chandragupta took part in an uprising against that dynasty and then ultimately ascended to the throne at about 325 BCE. From there, Chandragupta started consolidating his power in the northern part of the Indian subcontinent, both through diplomacy and through military conquest.
0: What had been the Magadha Kingdom expanded into the Marian Empire. And this was the first time that all of this territory had been under the control of a central imperial government. Although it's not entirely clear whether all the tribes within that territory really recognized Chandragupta's leadership.
1: After Alexander the Great died in 323 BCE, Chandragupta took over the territory that had been controlled by Alexander's representatives. Alexander died without naming a successor, and afterward a collection of generals and friends and other powerful people known as the Diadochi went on went to war over how to divide the kingdom. One of these was Seleucus Nicator who tried to invade Chandragupta's kingdom in 305 BCE. Chandragupta's forces repelled this invasion and ultimately formed an alliance with Seleucus.
0: Seleucus's so representative to Chandragupta's court was a man named Megasthenes, who was also a historian. Megasthenes went on to write a four-volume history of the region known as the Indica, which became the Greek world's primary source of information about the Indian subcontinent. Other Greek ambassadors were sent to the Marian court at the capital of Patalaputra as well.
1: Later on in Chandragupta's reign, he converted to Jainism. In about 297 BCE, he relinquished the throne to his son. A Jainist sage had foretold a famine, and when Chandragupta wasn't able to prevent it, he left his throne to spend the rest of his life devoted to religious piety and in service to this sage. Ultimately, he started a religious fast that he continued until he died of starvation.
0: Bindusara's reign isn't as well documented as his father's, but he did continue to expand the Marian Empire before his death. His death led to some kind of struggle within the line of succession, but the details on what exactly was going on there are pretty murky. Polygamy was normal at this point, especially among royal families, and Bindusara definitely had multiple sons who were jockeying for the throne. But how many half-brothers there were and what happened among them really varies based on what accounts you're reading.
1: In Buddhist accounts of Ashoka's life, he's depicted as starting out very cruel and tyrannical before converting to Buddhism and leading the empire according to Buddhist principles. Several of these accounts start out by describing one of Ashoka's past lives when he was a boy named Jaya who met the Buddha and then threw dust or dirt into the Buddha's begging bowl. As a consequence of doing that, Ashoka was then born with some kind of a disorder that made his skin look like dried dirt. He was considered to be unattractive with a large head and a paunchy body. There was a paper published in 2015 in the Indian Journal of Psychiatry that speculates that he may have had neurofibromatosis type 1. According to some accounts, his father just did not want his so-called ugly son to follow him on the throne.
0: Buddhist accounts of Ashoka's ascension to the throne are unquestionably exaggerated. They describe him as ruthlessly killing 99 half-brothers to get them out of his way before starting his rule as a vicious leader, torturing prisoners, executing an entire harem after someone insulted him, and killing advisors who failed a loyalty test. And this earned him the nickname Ashoka the Ferocious.
1: Secular accounts are not nearly as dramatic, though. They acknowledged that Ashoka was not his father's oldest son or the first one in line for the throne. But Bindusara's chosen successor, Tsushima, was tasked with dealing with an uprising and he handled it badly. That caused him to lose the confidence of Bindusara's advisors. So either Ashoka played a part in Tsushima's execution and took his place, or Bindusara's advisors simply disregarded the emperor's wishes and put Ashoka onto the throne instead of his older brother.
0: Either way, After ascending to the throne around 270 BCE, Ashoka seems to have spent the first few years of his rule simply solidifying his political position. He built alliances and relationships among other powerful people in his court and in the rest of the empire. And he also tried to create an efficient and organized political administration.
1: Then, about eight years into his reign, once that throne seemed secure, Ashoka decided to do what his father and grandfather had both also done, which was to try to expand the empire. The kingdom of Kalinga in the southern part of the Indian subcontinent would give the empire control of important ports that would allow them better access to trade along the Indian Ocean. So Ashoka first demanded that the Kalinga kingdom agree to be annexed into the Mauryan Empire.
0: The kingdom refused, so Ashoka invaded. Once he had conquered the Kalinga kingdom, the Marian Empire stretched across nearly the entire Indian subcontinent, from what's now Afghanistan in the east to Pakistan in the west, including parts of Nepal and nearly all of India. Only the very tip of the subcontinent remained part of the Chola dynasty.
1: This was the first time in history that so much of the Indian subcontinent had been united as one empire, However, as was true with his grandfather's establishment of that empire in the first place, it's not entirely clear how much Ashoka's influence really extended throughout all of that territory. Sometimes you'll see maps that have, like, the entirety of the subcontinent shaded in one color, saying this was all of his territory. And then sometimes you'll see one that has, like, more blotches in the more central areas that are like, maybe not here, though.
0: According to Ashoka's account, the war was devastating for the Kalinga kingdom. His army killed 100,000 local people and removed 150,000 more. And that word removed could have meant that they were deported or enslaved. It's not entirely clear.
1: Rather than reveling in his victory, when he saw what he and his army had done, Ashoka was distraught. He decided to completely change the way he governed. In the words of H.G. Wells, The Outline of History, published in 1920, quote, The expedition was successful, but he was disgusted by what he saw of the cruelties and horrors of war. He declared in certain inscriptions that still exist that he would no longer seek conquest by war, but by religion. And the rest of his life was devoted to the spreading of Buddhism throughout the world. Um, This is when he was more nicknamed Ashoka the Righteous.
0: And we will talk about Ashoka's new way of ruling and those certain inscriptions after we pause for a little sponsor break. Privileges and start earning points toward your next day. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com, where travels come true.
2: Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit tomboyx.com to shop.
1: USPS Ground Advantage, Simple, Affordable, Reliable. Sometimes, Ashoka's realization of what the war had done to the Kalinga people was described as the moment that he converted to Buddhism. But it seems that that conversion had really happened at least a couple of years earlier. So he didn't suddenly become Buddhist after looking back on what he had done in this war. He did, though, more fully dedicate himself to Buddhist principles.
0: Before that, he just went on Easter. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, it would be really reductive to try to sum up an entire religion in a paragraph obviously, and uh please I hope nobody thinks my reference of Easter is disrespectful to Buddhism. Uh but to explain Ashoka's outlook, we do need to explain some terminology, particularly dharma. The word dharma is used to describe the Buddha's teachings and the knowledge contained in them, which is also called the Buddha dharma. But dharma is also a concept in both Buddhism and Hinduism with different nuances in each religion.
1: Uh, sometimes you'll hear people try to translate this word in a really simple way, but in these contexts, the word dharma really doesn't have one precise equivalent in English, and it's also evolved in its meaning in the centuries since Ashoka lived. And to further complicate things, Ashoka used the word Dhamma with two m's instead of d-h-a-r-m-a. That came from the Prakrit dialect of Sanskrit, and he didn't use this word in a way that exactly equated to the Buddhist concept of Dharma, but it was related. In Buddhism,
0: Dharma incorporates concepts like duty, morality, law, and righteousness into one idea. In one of Ashoka's edicts, he describes Dhamma this way, quote, noble deeds of Dhamma and the practice of Dhamma consist of having kindness, generosity, truthfulness, purity, gentleness, and goodness increase among people. In other places, Ashoka frames this in a paternal way, referring to his subjects as his children.
1: So you can see some, not exactly overlap, but you can see some relation in these two ideas, but they're definitely not the exact same thing. After Ashoka saw the results of his conquest of Kalinga, he absolutely devoted himself to ruling according to this idea of Dhamma. One of his queens, Karavaki, was credited with influencing him in this direction. One of his first acts after making this change was to take a 256-day tour of his territory. A lot of folks have uh, made different interpretations of the significance of that number of days On this tour, he distributed wealth and delivered addresses about his newfound dedication to Dhamma and what it meant for the empire. From there, he took regular Dhamma tours of the empire, which involved, quote, visits and gifts to Brahmins and ascetics, visits and gifts of gold to the aged, visits to people in the countryside, instructing them in Dhamma and discussing Dhamma with them as is suitable.
0: Dhamma was threaded all through every aspect of Ashoka's government. All of its actions and decisions would be influenced by Dhamma, which was nonviolent and stressed social responsibility and respect for others. His ministers would be agents of Dhamma. He would appoint ambassadors whose role was not just maintaining diplomatic relationships with other nations, but also to spread the Dhamma. He had special ministers whose whole duty was to spread the Dhamma.
1: He wanted disagreements among nations to be settled according to a nonviolent approach through Dhamma, not through war. If war was completely unavoidable, he wanted the belligerents to behave in an ethical manner and for the victors to behave in a just, compassionate way toward the defeated.
0: Ashoka's dedication to Dhamma was so complete that some sources have described him as a zealot, but he wasn't intolerant of other religions. He does seem to hope that his subjects will become Buddhist or at least follow their own religions in a way that was compatible with Buddhism and Dhamma. But he also described honoring another person's religion as an aspect of honoring one's own. He encouraged each person to follow their own religious traditions so long as doing so was compatible with Dhamma.
1: For example, he banned ritual animal sacrifice, which was part of the Vedic tradition in the imperial capital of Pataliputra. He also discouraged a number of rituals and ceremonies, including ones that were performed on occasions like births, deaths, and marriages, because he thought that a life of moral conduct and adherence to Dhamma was more important than these kinds of observances.
0: However, he seems to have been less tolerant of diversity within Buddhism. There are several accounts of his carrying out purges of dissenting monks within Buddhist religious communities, or sangha. One of the edicts he issued is known as the Schism Edict and threatened to expel monks that caused dissent within their orders.
1: Another aspect of Ashoka's concept of dhamma was making sure the people in his empire were well and cared for. He embarked on the expansion of the empire's public works. He built a network of roads to foster trade and commerce, and he had wells, public rest houses, and mango and banyan groves planted alongside them to provide shelter, water, food, and shade. He also built irrigation systems and dams and ordered the cultivation of medicinal plants.
0: He established programs to help the poor and the elderly and encouraged the population to be frugal in their personal spending, but generous toward priests, ascetics, and the poor. He established medical practices for people and for animals, and if he discovered that people in a particular area didn't have the medicinal herbs or other supplies that they needed, he sent them. He had so much focus on all of this that sometimes the Marian Empire under his rule is described as the first welfare state.
1: He also called on judicial officers to take care to be fair and merciful so that the people living under their law wouldn't be imprisoned unjustly or treated harshly while imprisoned. And he set up sort of an audit system where officials known as Mahamatas would inspect the judicial system in each city every five years to make sure it was functioning in a just and humane way.
0: Ashoka also approached the royal household and his personal conduct, according to the Dhamma. He greatly reduced and may have entirely eliminated the killing of animals for meat in the royal kitchens. He made donation to Buddhist sects, He did continue to have multiple queens and a harem of concubines, something that didn't really align with Buddhism, but it was really typical at the time.
1: Apart from the reduction in meat consumption in the royal household, Ashoka also declared a lot of animals to be protected, including parrots, ruddy geese, wild ducks, queen ants, wild and domestic pigeons, porcupines, squirrels, deer, and, quote, all four-footed creatures that are neither useful nor edible. He also declared very young animals to be protected and goats, ewes, and sows that were producing milk, whether or not they were feeding their young. And he decreed that animals could not be castrated on specific days.
0: Many of these acts and decrees are documented in at least 33 inscriptions in and around what used to be the Marian Empire. They were carved into things like boulders, rock faces, cave walls, and quarried polished pillars. Some, based on their position, may have been boundary markers or notifications to travelers who were entering Marian territory. Others are at places that had Buddhist religious significance or were important cities during Ashoka's reign. Today, these inscriptions are collectively known as the Edicts of Ashoka, and they're located around what's now India, Nepal, Pakistan, and Afghanistan.
1: He could make the point that Ashoka made these. He was definitely talking about his intent and not necessarily how successfully all of this was carried out. And also, uh, if I were making inscriptions about m- my work as an emperor, I would probably make myself sound really good. <laughs> right. Um we just uh we we don't have a lot of clear impartial unbiased sources about Ashoka. So just keep that in mind. Um Ashoka had all these inscriptions made in three phases. The first, the minor rock edicts, were made in the 11th or 12th year of his rule, or roughly 258 BCE. The major rock edicts were in the 12th or 13th year, or about 257 BCE. All of the rock edicts were the ones that were carved into things like boulders and cliff faces and cave walls. Then the third phase of all this, the pillar edicts, those were created starting in the 26th year of his rule, or about 243 BCE. The quarried pillars measured about 40 feet tall, and then some were topped with a statue of an animal, like a lion or an elephant or a bull. Today, the official emblem of India is a rendition of the lion capital of Ashoka, which is the capital of Ashoka's pillar in Sarnath, and that's where the Buddha taught for the first time.
0: In addition to what we have just talked about, some of the edicts include Ashoka's thoughts— on the war we mentioned earlier with Kalinga, including his deep remorse for having conquered another kingdom. He describes feeling pain over the scale of the killing involved, but also states that he would feel the same pain if the death toll had been one hundredth or one thousandth that amount.
1: The texts of all these edicts appears to be in Ashoka's own words, rather than filtered through some kind of formal, stylized imperial pronouncement. And they seem to have been intended for ordinary citizens of the empire to read. In most places, the text is written in the Eastern or Western Pakrit dialect, whichever was actually spoken by the people living there, rather than using the more academic language of formal Sanskrit. They are written in a script called Brahmi, which started to be used approximately during Ashoka's reign. Sometimes it's even described as a script that he ordered to have created to help make his administrative state more efficient. It's not completely clear where the script originated, though. In the empire's farthest Western reaches, where people were more likely to speak Greek or Aramaic, the edicts were instead written in those languages using another script called Karashti.
0: These inscriptions have become a major source of information about Ashoka and his empire. But after his death, knowledge of how to read them was lost. We will talk about Ashoka's last year and how the edicts were lost and then redeciphered after we first have a sponsor break. Privileges and start earning points toward your next day. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com, where travels come true.
2: Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies, so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit tomboyx.com to shop.
1: USPS Ground Advantage. Simple, affordable, reliable. (music) Ashoka's adherence to Buddhism and his focus on Dhamma seem to have increased throughout his lifetime. He went on pilgrimages to various sites that were associated with the life of the Buddha, including the Buddha's birthplace and the tree under which the Buddha attained enlightenment. In his last years, Ashoka started making more and more donations to monasteries and other religious communities out of the imperial treasury until his advisors cut off his access to it out of fear that he would drain it completely. At that point, he started donating his personal fortune. I like that they took
0: away his checkbook. Um, Ashoka became ill toward the end of his life. In the Buddhist legends that evolved after his death, he continued to give away his personal wealth until all he had left was half a piece of fruit. He gave that last piece to the monk that was caring for him on his deathbed.
1: Ashoka died in about 232 BCE, having ruled the Mauryan Empire for almost 40 years. The empire itself lasted only another 50 years approximately after that, and during that time it had six more emperors. The Indian subcontinent is huge, And there was and is a lot of diversity among its peoples and sects. Most of these, uh, you know, kingdoms and sects and peoples had only been considered part of one empire for less than a century when Ashoka died. So it seems that his successors just didn't have the skill or charisma to hold the empire together. Sometimes you'll also read arguments that all of this charitable work and good that he was trying to do just made things impossible for his successors to continue after he had died.
0: Yeah, they're probably a little short on resources. Yeah. Um, (laughs) One ongoing topic of discussion about Ashoka today is whether to describe him as a Buddhist king or emperor. In general, Buddhism is a religion that focuses on the individual. The Buddha's enlightenment related to the idea that suffering exists and it exists for everyone, and each person can end their own suffering through the Eightfold Path.
1: So these eight elements are translated in various ways, with one of the translations being right understanding, right thought, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration— so according to Buddhism if each person follows the eightfold path the whole of humanity can be released from suffering but every person's release comes from that person's own pursuit of the path not someone else's like I can do everything in my power to bring enlightenment to Holly but that's Holly's work right. like <laughs> it is not something that can be bestowed on one person by another
0: right I just want the magic tree to sit under I know it's not magic um In Ashoka's edicts, he described himself as a lay Buddhist, but much of his governance of the Marian Empire was outwardly focused on taking actions as emperor to relieve the suffering of others. He doesn't refer to philosophical Buddhist ideas in his edicts, but to moral, compassionate, and ethical actions and behavior. So it's not as clear whether he thought his rule as emperor was a Buddhist act or an expression of his Buddhism. He describes himself as Buddhist, but he doesn't describe his empire or his rule as Buddhist.
1: However, as the Buddhist religion grew in the years after Ashoka's death, various people and sects claimed Ashoka and his leadership as their own. Buddhism grew and expanded through the Indian subcontinent and beyond, and for a time, it became the most widely practiced religion in what's now India. Ashoka became a really legendary figure within that tradition, with stories that exaggerated his early cruelty to make that conversion to Buddhism and subsequent behavior more compelling and dramatic. He was interpreted as a Buddhist emperor and even credited with the growth and the spread of Buddhism as a religion.
0: Some even went so far as to credit Ashoka with the Third Buddhist Council, which was convened at his capital around 247 BCE. The Third Buddhist Council discussed matters of doctrine and dispatched missionaries to establish new Buddhist communities, and it played a direct part in the expansion of Buddhism in South Asia and beyond. But it was convened independently from Ashoka, and it was not something that he controlled.
1: Over time... Megasthenes' Indica was lost, although fragments of it are included in other Greek writers' work. So we have basically quotes from it, but not the entire four volumes. Knowledge of how to read the inscriptions on the Edicts of Ashoka was lost as well, and some of that loss was intentional. Later, rulers defaced the carvings or added their own names, something we've talked about with other long-ago historical rulers In about the 5th century CE, Hinduism replaced Buddhism as the major religion on the Indian subcontinent, and some Hindu religious leaders intentionally worked to try to erase Ashoka and his Buddhist influence from history.
0: Eventually, the only remaining sources of information on Ashoka were Buddhist legends written in Sanskrit, Pali, Tibetan, Chinese, Japanese, Thai, and other Asian languages. The two longest and most detailed sources are the Ashoka Vedana from the Divya Vedana, which was written in Northwest India in Sanskrit, approximately 200 CE, and the Mahavamsa, which is an epic poem written in Sri Lanka in the 5th century CE in the Pali language.
1: Uh, So, obviously, a lot of time had passed between his life and when those were were penned. Uh, In a very general sense, these two accounts reflect two different Buddhist perspectives, with the Ashoka Vedana being more reflective of Mahayana Buddhism and the Mahavamsa being more reflective of Theravada Buddhism. Both of these are definitely Buddhist works of literature, though, and their accounts of Ashoka's life and reign are unquestionably influenced by Buddhism as a religion, and by Buddhist literary conventions.
0: In addition to the basic chronology of Ashoka's life that we have already discussed, Buddhist accounts include stories that are more like parables, illustrating Ashoka as a Buddhist leader. In one, for example, Ashoka orders the construction of 84,000 stupas, which are dome or mound-like structures containing relics. He did this all within a day, with the sun pausing to let him finish, something that is usually interpreted as having been a solar eclipse.
1: One of the books that I read as um, a source for this episode I went through when all the solar eclipses occurred during his reign to try to reference when building of stupas may have happened. Um, there's been a lot of effort to try to make a, like a clear and accurate chronology. Anyway, uh, these legends and poems became nearly the only source of information about Ashoka from sometime a few centuries after he lived until the 19th century— English antiquarian and orientalist James Princep became the first European scholar to decipher the Brahmi script in 1837. He had become interested in the script after a fragment of one of Ashoka's pillar edicts was unearthed, and he wanted to try to preserve this language. But it took a
0: while for people to connect the newly deciphered text back to Ashoka. Most of the inscriptions use the name Devanampriya, or Beloved of the Gods, rather than Ashoka's actual name. So at first, Princep attributed them to Devanampiya Tissa of Sri Lanka, and there is still some debate about whether all of the inscriptions should be traced back to Ashoka. Another scholar, George Toomer, made the connection between Princep's work and Ashoka in the 19th century.
1: Uh, This, of course, led to an effort to figure out, number one, what all of the Pillars said, uh, and then to figure out the truth behind the legendary accounts of Ashoka, which had become more widely known at the time. The Pillars also included a lot more dates than the more legendary accounts of Ashoka's life, and then that led to a lot of efforts to piece together a more specific timeline of Ashoka's reign and the Empire as a whole, Uh, the Western look at all of this text also sparked a lot of interest in the text itself. And at this point, the edict's text has been studied a lot more thoroughly than the archaeological context of the inscriptions themselves.
0: We'll end with something H.G. Wells wrote about Ashoka in The Outline of History, which was published in 1920. Quote, For 8 and 20 years, Ashoka worked sanely for the real needs of men. Amidst the tens of thousands of names of monarchs that crowd the columns of history, their majesties and graciousnesses and serenities and royal highnesses and the like, the name of Ashoka shines, and shines almost alone a star. From the Volga to Japan, his name is still honored. China, Tibet, and even India, though it has left his doctrine, preserve the tradition of his greatness." More living men cherish his memory today than have ever heard the names of Constantine or Charlemagne.
1: Obviously, it's a very Western approach to Ashoka, uh, but I loved that quote anyway, and I wanted to include it. I found reading about all of Ashoka's um, at least intent to do good deeds and good works to just be very comforting in the time of pandemic chaos that we are currently living through. Uh, so I'm glad that was where I ultimately arrived when trying to figure out what to research today. Yeah. Uh, Do you have a bit of listener mail? I do. It's also a pretty optimistic listener mail. It is from Claire. Claire wrote in after the Render Pest episode and says, Hi, Holly and Tracy. Just finished the Render Pest episode. Always good to remember what humanity is capable of when we work together. You didn't mention, so I don't know if it came up in your research, but one of the knock-on effects of eliminating render pest was the restoration of the Serengeti. Wildebeest and water buffalo are keystone species. In the 50s, the wildebeest population in the Serengeti Park was 700,000. By the 80s, it soared to 1.5 million Here's a link outlining how this improved the ecology of the park. If you want a gorgeous nature documentary while staying at home, the Serengeti Rules covers this with gorgeous footage to boot. I think now more than ever, it helps to remember the words of James Earl Jones. We are all connected in the great circle of life. Keep up the good work and stay safe and healthy, Claire. Thank you, Claire, um, for this email. Um, I had read a tiny bit about... What happened uh, in various African ecosystems after Renderpest was eliminated, but I also needed to finish writing the episode so we could record it, um, which I know happens to the both of us at times. Oh, yes. Um, the, when it gets to the point where it's like, we got to say this is done. So thank you so much <laughs> for giving me the chance, Claire, to say something about it on the show. Uh, if you'd like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at History Podcast at iHeartRadio.com. And then we're all over social media at Mist in History. That's where you'll find our Facebook, Pinterest, Twitter, and Instagram. And you can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, and anywhere else you would like to get your podcasts. <music> Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Happy Pride from Tomboy X.
2: We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop.
0: WORK.
2: Zumo Play.